Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening, David. Yes. How you doing? Uh, I'm very excited to clue our listeners in on a new and exciting new opportunity for the Battleship <laughs> Pretension fan. <laughs> this um, is a piece of land. Now listen <laughs> to what we're going to tell you. Yeah. Uh, no, we've been doing this for a very long time. Um, we're coming up on 12 years next month. Yeah. Next month when you're listening to this. It's still January when we're recording it. But Indeed. Yes. March will be 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, been, it's been going uh, very well. But uh, we keep getting more ambitious in terms of our coverage, in terms of festivals and, yeah. and other things that we, that we travel to. And these things uh, cost money. And so don't worry. Nothing's going to change for you unless you want it to. <laughs> Right? Yeah. But we are going to... If you want your podcast, you can keep your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, that's right. Um, But uh, we are going to, like so many other podcasts out there, we're starting the Patreon thing. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that there's going to be more Battleship Retention available to you uh, if you want it. Um, we hope you will. It's a great way to support the show yeah. and also to get some really fun. We have a lot of really fun ideas. Um, basically what we're going to be doing, you can go to, uh, patreon.com slash battleship pretension. Right. Um, and you can choose one of two levels to join. That's right. Uh, all right. They have, they have fun names cause Tyler was in charge of that, which is great. Yeah, I'm not making fun. I think it's awesome. You know what? Honestly, like, I make we make fun of my steering quite literally uh, into the uh, the the naval brand, but so much of it is like oh thank God we we went with that because it just gives me something to latch on to. Yeah. Like if I need the name of something, hey, no problem. So yeah, we at the moment we have uh, two tiers. I don't imagine a third one coming along. Uh, I think this is it, but. We'll keep you posted. And what are the what are the names of them? <clears throat> All right, so there's a five dollar and a ten dollar. Uh-huh. The five dollar is called the petty officer, okay. and the ten dollar is the admiral. Now it's a big jump. It's a big jump. <laughs> You'd think that it would be the difference between five dollars and say a thousand. Yeah, but uh, no, only ten because when you've got, I guess I could have left myself some room and been like, you know chief petty officer and they're like wow how how high up are they gonna go um but yeah so right now it's just petty officer and admiral and here's what you get yeah so for the petty officer level uh that'll be five dollars a month you will get a new bonus episode every week that the main subscriber won't be able to listen to and we're not gonna do some bullshit 10 minute thing no we are windbags and we are planning for each bonus episode to be a solid 45 minutes. Of course, we thought this podcast 12 years ago was going to be 40 to 45 minutes. And now look where we ended up. So yeah. you might get even more than you bargained yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, if you download a regular episode of Battleship Retention and it's 45 minutes, something went wrong. Like, <laughs> right. We got sick. Yeah. Or had to so cut David got a call <laughs> yeah. and he's got to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so you'll get a new episode every week. Uh, probably we're thinking probably Tuesday night slash Wednesday mornings is mm-hmm. when that'll go up. Um, in addition to that, 
our existing non-commentary premium episodes. This is why those of you who listened to the uh, movie journal earlier this week when I told you to hang on, uh, you will immediately get those. So the 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 bonus episode we just recorded, yeah, about the Oscar nominations, uh, Oscar nominees for this year, you'll get that automatically. You will get our episode. What what else? What else will they get? Uh, our very first premium episode was with our friend Bill Dwyer many years ago. And then we had, uh, Scott and I and Jason Eakin talk about, come on and talk about the year 2007. Uh, we had, uh, last year's BP's ceremony, uh, with right. you, me and Scott that's available. So the $5 gets you new bonus episodes and our old bonus episodes, but not, not the commentaries. Commentary. So you might be able to see where the ten dollar one is, right. is going. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, yeah. So the ten dollar one, the the admiral level, mm-hmm. gets you uh, the same thing. It gets you a new episode every week, new bonus episode every week, all of the existing bonus episodes plus all of the existing commentaries. And um, some, let me say this: as somebody who uploaded all this stuff. Uh huh. We have so many commentaries. <laughs> I like, as I started doing, you know, one movie at a time, because when we do commentaries, it's usually three, four or five movies in a day. And so when I send them out to people, I tend to send them as like one unit. But when you're uploading one movie at a time, you're always like, this is ridiculous. We've done a lot Why of have we done this to ourselves? Yeah. Uh, but yes, it is a lot of content. So yeah, the $10 level, you get that, uh, you get the episode plus for those four bonus episodes, uh, a month, you will get video, which yeah. is something that apparently people want <laughs> people. It's, are you excited? It's like, Oh, I hear them sitting and talking. Yeah. Now I get to see it. And while it's, I realize that we're not selling it well, but people like it. Yeah, you get to see Tyler's whole movie collection. You get to see you some get, of my Riddlers. You get to see us uh, checking our phones while the other person is talking sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's like, and you get the fun experience of, oh, two guys with beards and glasses. Which is which? Who's to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's what the $10 level gets you. So the $5 gets you every Patreon episode going forward, plus our existing four bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. $10 gets you every Patreon episode going forward with video, yeah. plus our existing bonus episodes and our existing commentaries. Yes. Uh, now, what I want to say about the commentaries Indeed. going forward, once you become a Patreon subscriber, um, because we only have so much time, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, those pay, uh, that the month of the commentaries, those will be the Patreon bonus episodes. So you won't have to buy the commentaries at either level going forward. Right. Um, and those will be your bonus episodes, um, for, for that month. And, uh, but and, those, those pay, but to non Patreon people, the commentaries will still be available for yes. the normal 10 bucks, uh, for the package or whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, that's the main thing I also wanted to say and we'll yeah for the for those of you who don't join the Patreon nothing's going to change except at the end of episodes you probably are going to hear us talk about what's on the Patreon this week that's about the only thing that will that will change for you don't worry Um, I do want to tell Patreon uh, our potential Patreon subscribers to uh, one of the things because like I said we're doing video for these so we're essentially retiring the ask BP um, thing and that's going to become a monthly ish uh, Patreon episode so if you have questions for us about our personal lives not about our jobs I'm not going to talk about our jobs mm-hmm. about our thoughts on movies about anything um, 
you can you can uh, email them to me, David at BattleshipRetention.com. Um, and the, those will be part of our uh, monthly-ish mailbag episodes on on the Patreon for the Patreon sub- subscribers. So that's patreon.com slash Battleship Retention. Yeah. That's our big announcement. Um, and, and again, for those of you who don't want to join, nothing's going to change. Right. We're still going to have movie journals. We're still going to have uh, episodes proper. The premium content, if you want to buy it, you can. Uh, yeah. It's not going to be only available to pay, uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh, patrons, I believe, is what we should start calling them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will I will say this. it's, And I'm trying to examine myself to see if it's coming from a place of paranoia. I don't think it is. Um, based on what other podcasters have mentioned to me um, about certain reactions uh whenever a patreon starts um i realize that we do have sponsors and we do sell bonus content and so some people might wonder why are you doing this how much money do you guys need um and we love our sponsors we are very uh grateful for them and if you want to sponsor Battleship Retention, you're always more than welcome to. Sure. Um, we try to set our price points at a reasonable rate. But, yeah, very um, reasonable. Which, yeah, maybe yeah. maybe too reasonable. That's why we're doing this Patreon. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it, it ultimately comes down to, as David said, like he's going to Toronto International Film Festival. We do Comic-Con. We, we so just I did just Sundance. Sundance. Uh, we do stuff that people find interesting and you know you actually because of battleship retention and because of you going to sundance like people get reviews of movies that aren't going to come out for months and months and you as a as a as a reader and as a listener like you get first dibs on uh, on david's reviews of that and that kind of thing so uh and that does cost money because we after doing this for 12 years we don't necessarily like being out of our own pocket uh yeah. which thankfully hasn't happened in a while but if this if the patreon goes the way we would like it to go um then we can just keep adding stuff yeah we can keep doing more know. stuff we can get better equipment yeah, um that's true yeah newer equipment this laptop's getting pretty old yeah uh yeah every time I, like at, at sundance i'd sit down with another critic to you know like you sit at a bar or whatever yeah. and use the wi-fi and, and people are just like writing reviews everyone would get out their laptop and then i like have to haul out mine, yeah. which is <laughs> which is crazy it's not that frust- big but it's but, frustratingly heavy <laughs> uh yeah because laptops are so small now yeah um and and this this thing is uh yeah i giving me scoliosis uh standing yeah. in line at sundance um anyway so yeah battleship sorry patreon.com slash battleship pretension we're gonna have a lot of fun on the patreon episodes but i think that's going to be our main yes. goal with them is to keep them fun partially because this is going to be a lot of recording uh on our part and so yeah. we want to keep ourselves interested and hopefully you interested as well yeah um and it, i think it it frees us up quite a bit to, i mean we do have <coughs> specific ideas that we will come back to uh over and over again um but Yep. It can be like, hey, uh, uh, one example is like, all right, we're going to pick a year at random and we're going to do our individual top five movies of that year. Yeah. That's something that or, doesn't really lend itself to an episode. Yeah, or pick an actor or yeah, a director yeah. or something like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and um, 
and yeah, well, as we have ideas, like that's why I said monthly ish mailbag. We're not going to be rigid with the Patreon. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like if if there's a month where we have too many fun ideas, fun ideas to do a mailbag, then we'll, we'll push it off till next next month. Indeed. It's gonna be it's gonna be fun. Um, and yeah, uh, only five dollars for uh, all the episodes. Ten dollars if you want all the episodes with video mm-hmm. and our past commentaries. Indeed. Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here. Um, so just something that we forgot to mention when we were talking about the Patreon is that uh, if you purchased our most recent bonus episode about this year's uh, Oscar nominations uh, with Dave Platt, if you purchased that and then you become uh, one of our patrons with either the five or ten dollar plan, uh, we will refund you the dollar fifty that you paid for the bonus episode. Um, we would hate for you to feel like you're paying for something twice. So, um, so if you, once again, if you bought the bonus episode and you subscribe to our Patreon, uh, you will get that dollar 50 back. So thank you very much. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what, well now I feel bad going into our sponsors. (laughs) I feel like maybe we can hold off until later. Uh, I mean, I guess I could talk about the thing I was going to talk about at the Please top do, of the show. Uh, but I was going to say, should we announce our next commentary? Yes. Is that a good time to do that, this? I think there's a good time to do it. So Get people uh, excited about it. It was all your idea, but I'm really on board. Yeah. So, uh, like I said, the Patreon will get you the just recorded uh, Oscar nominees bonus episode. Um, and it will also get you our next commentary, which you can buy if you're not a, pa- a patron. Right. But our next commentary, and it's, which isn't for like a couple months at this point. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's almost two months uh, for now. But um, look, everyone knows the most anticipated movie of 2019 for any thinking person. Okay. Is John Wick 3. Right? Right. And so in celebration of the great man himself, our next commentary is going to be uh, four movies that are Point Break, Speed, The Matrix, and John Wick. We are doing a Keanu Kicks Ass right. uh, uh, movie commentary marathon. It's going to be so much fun. Uh, slots are going to fill up with our uh, our and your favorite guests. Yeah. Um, and those are going to be available at the end of March or the very beginning of April. I'm not entirely uh, sure. Pretty much end of March. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And what's... I'm sure there are people that are like, why aren't you doing Bill and Ted? It's like, this is action, action only. only. Yeah. What's fun is that we could do a second round of these of like non-action where you do Bill and Ted, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, okay. Uh, the Gift. Okay. And The Lake House, you know? <laughs> yeah. So. See, I was thinking you could do like an all comedy one with Bill and the, both the Bill and Ted movies. Okay. Parenthood. Sure. And, uh, much to do about nothing. Uh, much to do about nothing. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, where wow. he's by far the worst part of it. Um, I still like that movie. I uh, know I do uh, too. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, I, I think a lot of people, including me have, have gotten to a point where they're okay with, uh, Keanu Reeves and the fact that he has an acting career, uh, despite yeah. not being the most compelling actor in certain roles, like, like in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but there's um, no one else like him. That's a hundred percent true. It, Do you remember? Well, you to, you told me about it, but it's been it's long since defunct. Is uh, Fame Tracker? Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so it was this great website. I think that I think it's still there. I okay. think you can still read their old stuff, but it's not active. Yeah, it was a great uh, website. So they would do a thing where they would pick like an actor, and they would say like, "Okay, are they?" 
are they, should they be more famous? Are they famous enough? Do they deserve their fame? Like at what level, like what level are they at? And then what level should they be? So in some cases it was, I can't even think of an example, but like, it'd be like a big star. And it's like, yeah, but in actuality they should probably be at say C Thomas Howell level <laughs> fame. And then Keanu Reeves was the only one that where they said, his level is Keanu Reeves and his, that is the level he can be at. And yeah. no one else is there. He exists outside of, of standard Hollywood. He just kind of does his own thing yeah. along the, I feel like Denzel Washington is a lot is that as well. Like he seems to exist outside of the standard mm-hmm. Hollywood machine, but also Keanu Reeves is a weirdo in real life, which is, yes. which is great, which is why one of the many, many, many reasons I've always loved, uh, um, Constantine mm-hmm. is that it's Keanu Reeves and Tilda Swinton, two of cinema's great weirdos. Uh, and facing I believe off there's a uh, Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare well. does show That's, up near the end. Yeah, a lot of weirdos. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Pruitt Taylor Vince. Uh, Boy, yeah. You got a, a great selection of weird. I've, I've been having and, uh, this. Shia LaBeouf. I've had this movie sitting on my shelf for years. What's your thing? Still haven't watched it. It's so good. Now I feel like I, anyway. I should, but okay. Okay, so should I talk about the thing I was going to talk about? Sure. Okay, this will be real quick, but I just want to... Uh, I'm in a weird position here. Tyler mentioned Sundance. I just came back from Sundance. I saw, among among other things, I saw a bunch of things that we'll talk about next week on the podcast, uh, but uh, we had to do our uh, episode 630 uh, this time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but one of the things that I saw was Joe Berlinger's extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile, which is a movie about in which Zac Efron plays Ted Bundy. And I guess during the, I think it was while it was at Sundance, the trailer came out or at least that's when I first started uh, hearing it. And people, a lot of people uh, were up in arms at the trailer because they're saying, why are you romanticizing the serial killer glorifying him or making him seem cool in some way. Um, and it's just, I, I, the reason I say I'm in a weird position is because having seen the movie, I don't actually think it's that good, Mm -hmm. but it's not that. Yeah. And I watched the trailer and I was like, I get how someone could, you know, could, could glean that from the trailer. But in 2019, are we still so gullible that we're assuming the trailer represents what the movie is going to be? Uh, I'd say not only yes, but also maybe even more so in 2019 than in the past. I mean, it's, it's definitely a kind of a knee jerk culture right now. Like you get even a whiff of, which is what a, a trailer is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a whiff of the movie. And if you get that and you don't like what you smell, like there's blood in the water and to mix my metaphors like you'll and everyone they smell blood in the water they smell blood in the water <laughs> and in doing so they drown <laughs> yeah yeah that's 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 how your metaphor ends up <laughs> if you smell blood in the water you will drown there you go so what i'm saying is don't judge a movie by its trailer and also do you not know about ted bundy like part of the thing was that he was good looking and charming and right. that's how he lured women in you know and got them to let their guard down. Mm-hmm. So that that's how Zach Efron is, is playing it. It's, it's why they it's cast a, performance. a charismatic, attractive leading man yeah. to play him. Like, yeah. So yeah. Uh, again, I can't really recommend the movie that much, but also I can recommend not judging a movie by the trailer. What I would really recommend is just stop watching trailers, uh, as much as possible. Right. But I know that, uh, that's a losing battle for me. Okay. Let's pay some bills. Okay. Uh, won't be any of this on the Patreon episodes. That's true. 
Though if you want to sponsor our Patreon, no, I'm joking. That's I'm joking. Not true. Okay. We'll never do that. <laughs> Uh, boy, can you imagine how angry people would be? Okay, uh, this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi is Steve James' Stevie a film that I have not seen, but you have, and you specifically wanted to, to talk about. Well, I just want to, cause yeah, it's a good, it's, it's, it's from, um, uh, what's his name? Who made hoop dreams, Steve James, Steve James, uh, made hoop dreams, um, which Steve James and, uh, Cartemquin, is that how you say it? Cartemquin films is the production company know. that he works with is Chicago based mm-hmm. where you and I went to school and the, uh, DP or one of the DPs of Stevie was a cinematography instructor at, our school, I took a class with her. Uh, her name uh, was and remains Dana Cooper. She was a great teacher. Um, and Stevie's a, a really good movie. I'm always interested in cinematography within documentaries. Like, it's not like it doesn't exist. Camera right, placement yeah. is very important, but it's something people rarely talk about. They'll talk about the editing a lot, but they d- tend not to talk about the way a documentary is shot. I, maybe because most of them are pretty straightforward, but you still have it's still placement of the camera for maximum effect. Yeah. You know, but, uh, anyway. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so Stevie is uh, available on movie and there's a special offer for listeners of battleship pretension. You can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com. That's M U B I.com slash battleship to redeem now. Uh, this week's episode is also brought to you by the Dice Enthusiast Presents podcast, a 10-chapter te- a podcast miniseries about four roommates who endure a number of life-changing events while simultaneously playing a board game that lasted for the entirety of 2017. Uh, to find out just how crazy their lives got, go to DiceEnthusiast.com or click on the ad at BattleshipPretension.com. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. You see, tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. And uh, Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Today, I was listening because I'm trying to, I, you know, you know, my greatest fear in life is being out of touch. Yes. So I'm listening to what the kids are listening to. Um, I don't know if that's true, actually. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I... Uh, I was listening to, uh, there's a, an artist, uh, her first album is almost coming out, uh, is coming out in a month or two. Um, her name is Billie Eilish. She, she's from right here in, in Los Angeles. Um, had an EP like a year and a half ago. And I was listening to her new, uh, uh, single this morning, uh, on my tweet.com earbuds. And I was like, this is great. And I went to look her up and saw, I, 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 I try not to do the God I'm old thing, mm-hmm. but she was born in 2001. Uh, uh, and, uh, in any case, um, terrifying as that is to me, um, the music's great and it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded, too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? 
Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Tyler? Yes. I don't know if you've been keeping up on our episode numbers. Um, I don't mean how many downloads they're getting. That's doing great. Right, what I'm talking about is each episode, each non-movie journal episode is numbered. Mm-hmm. So the number of weeks we've been doing the show. We've done one a week um, for, at this point, 630 weeks. Um, wait. 630? Six, or is 620? I think it's 620. No, this seems like an easy thing to look up. Uh, which I will do. It is 620. Yeah. 620 weeks. Sorry. I was getting ahead of myself. Um, and we've had a tradition for most of the, the, those weeks in which every time we do an episode in which that number Mm -hmm. on the, that's on your, your podcast player, your phone or, or your desktop, you know, screen or whatever, uh, ends in a zero, but is not evenly divisible, divisible by 50. Mm -hmm. We do a profile. Yeah. And so we, we might be changing things up with the Patreon. We are not, you can rest assured, changing things up right. with the every 10 weeks. You're going to hear for every 50. this horseshit uh, <laughs> spiel <laughs> that you did not tune in for yeah. every 10 weeks. Don't, I don't you worry about that. 10 weeks is just long enough for people to, like, to kind of forget that I'm going to do this. I do. <laughs> and, then, and then you That's like, what I'm hoping. Yeah, and uh, um, hopefully the, the listeners are just as exasperated by it as I am. So, um, we are doing a profile and as we have been doing a lot recently on the profiles, um, which I don't think we have any, um, plans to stop doing We are doing a tribute to someone who passed away recently. Mm -hmm. And so this time we will be profiling the career of director Nicholas Rogue. Okay. Um, whom I, uh, I guess I first would have come to with the witches, which we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. uh, later, but I wasn't really at that age. I didn't really know about what directors were. Yeah. You know, I think the, the first time that I realized that a Nicholas rogue, something was something was when I saw walkabout, which was probably, uh, when I was 19 or 20. Yeah. It was many, um, many years ago. I remember you raving about it at the time. Oh, we lived together, right? Mm-hmm. In Chicago. Yeah. So I was probably 20, yeah, 20 years old or so. Um, uh, I've since gone on to see uh, uh, a number of his films, including some of the ones that I watched for this episode. Because mm-hmm. I think the, if you're to ask, the, the, the consensus has long been that the 70s were Nicholas Rogue's decade. Right. Up until 1980, which is bad timing. And that it's kind of downhill after that. And so what I ended up watching is a lot of the 80s and early oh, 90s okay. stuff. Um which uh, was not as as successful either commercially or or critically uh, as his earlier stuff, but is definitely worth recommending on its own. So we'll get into that. But do we first want to? I want to ask you because you've seen fewer of these films. Yeah. What do you think of when you think of a Nicholas Rogue film? What do you associate him with? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is going to sound strange when people say that like his heyday was the seventies. Um. I feel like that's probably true, but I'm going to go a step further. He is the seventies. Okay. (laughs) By which I mean, when you watch his movies and, and yes, I haven't seen that many, but those that I have, when you think of the seventies style, um, I'd say late sixties, early seventies style of a, of 
quick cuts, usually a, a fair amount of nonlinear editing. Yeah, um, a lot of zooms. A lot of zooms, uh, Dutch angles, that sort of thing. Um, a certain tone that just keeps you either on edge or just on your toes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's, uh, there's a lot, I mean, I think of that with like De Palma of the time and movies like Easy Rider uh, and Nicholas Rogue is, is yeah. that, I mean, he is the epitome of like a seventies filmmaker and I'm not saying that wholly negatively or wholly positively. Uh, yeah. if you don't like that style of filmmaking, he is definitely not for you. Uh, and he's always been very much for me. And I think anyone, once you get on his wavelength, it's, um, cause I hadn't really thought about it like that. And you're right that it's interesting to hear him compared to Brian De Palma, because I see where you're coming from in terms mm-hmm. of the zooms and like lots of quick cutting. Um, but I put them on almost different spectrum, different ends of the spectrum, right? Because Brian De Palma is so postmodern and self-aware, which yes, is not, again, not a bad thing. Whereas, uh, Nicholas Rogue is more of an impressionist. You know, he, he's, you know, if you, um, if you remember, if you listened to the movie journal, I talked about the other side of the wind, which is a very, what you're talking about yeah. type of type of movie. Um, and I described it as, as a filmmaker thinking out loud, you know, and Nicholas Rogue does seem like someone who is just always reacting to the moment. And his movies feel so organic and feel like they're coming directly out of him that he is, thinking and speaking in cinema yes it is as opposed to through cinema there is a certain presentness uh to his films where you can almost see him of course filmmaking is it's a very in-depth process so this isn't literally true but it is almost as if in the moment you feel you hear him saying like hey what about if i did this Uh all right and then it's happening yeah uh it's it there's an almost in some ways, in some ways, there's almost a stream of consciousness quality to it. Yeah, but not the character's consciousness, his. But there, like, I, well, we won't get to the first move. But there are some where I was watching it, and it's like, and we are cutting to something that's going to happen in the future. Like we're gonna, we see a character who is not even introduced as a character yet. Yeah. Uh, that's even the concept of the character has not been introduced, but we're cutting to them just for a moment, and then it's back to business, and it's like that sir that 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 does that doesn't it's almost as though the director himself is like oh boy i can't wait till we get to this moment but uh, that, that is, that is negative. i don't mean for it too but i i don't think of it that way i think of it as i think he tends to and we'll get into more specific examples he tends to have because i do think it as being very much of the character i think he tends to ha- have this idea that characters can that their psychology can affect their landscape sure and so the reason we're seeing the future is because their fates are already sort of sealed by the way that they are thinking about the world. It, um, there is a, a, a touch of expressionism mm-hmm. to his films yeah, as right, well, right. Uh, certainly stylistically and also just in the, in the editing. But let's go back to before he was a, a director, when he was a, a cinematographer, he, I mean, mm-hmm. he worked his way up. Um, uh, I was reading cause I was, I was doing some research. I was reading a, a really great uh, or a reading about a really great anecdote about how Nicholas Rogue and Alan Parker were good friends, but also kind of frenemies in mm-hmm. a way because Alan Parker was always making fun of Nicholas Rogue for being out of touch because he came from money, mm-hmm. whereas Alan Parker came from the working class. But Nicholas Rogue's uh, re- rebuttal to that was always like, 
Alan Parker, you may have come from the working class, but you went straight from like, you know, secondary school to art school to, you know, mm-hmm. where Nicholas Rogue came up through cinema or through the film industry as a laborer, little, mm-hmm. you know, just like showing up lugging equipment, you know, and then moving up to fo- focus pulling and moving up to second, uh, to, um, uh, second unit because he, he was the second unit DP on Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And then he was hired as the DP yeah. for Dr. Zhivago. And then and that didn't last. It didn't last, but, uh, it does make me, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if, you know, we were talking about, uh, with the, with the Oscars, um, I mean, I can't remember that was us, but uh, um, the idea that once a director has completed a certain percentage or a certain number of days on a film, they have to be credited. It's part of mm. it's part of the DGA agreement. Okay. So that's why you know um, Brian Singer is credited, even though Dexter Fletcher right. um, uh, directed a, a, you know at least a substantial portion of Bohemian Rhapsody. But uh, there are various reports, but some people say that. Nicholas Rogue shot more than half of Dr. Zhivago and then Freddie Young replaced him and Freddie Young won the Oscar. Hmm. Um, that's kind of, I mean, it's kind of fucked up, right? Yeah. Uh, if that's true. Um, it is interesting to think of like a, such a classical filmmaker as David Lean working with somebody like Nicholas Rogue, who is just so modern in his sensibilities. Yeah. Uh, and I'm I could see sure them not getting on. Yeah. Um, but let's get into the movies. Speaking okay. of him getting on with directors, his his first directing job was a co-directing job. It was kind of by accident. Yeah. Because um, uh, Donald Camel or Camel, I never know how to say that. Uh, I love him as a director. He made Demon Seed, which you and I both love. That's right. Um, and he also Clean made, these lenses. Uh, he also made the movie um, uh, The White of the Eye, which um, hmm. I love, but I understand has its detractors as well. Uh, but they first worked together co-directing performance, Mm. which is a movie about a, um, really sociopathically, um, uh, violent gangster who finds himself, uh, on the short end of the stick within his, within his gang because he sort of went off the reservation and I think killed someone he wasn't supposed to. So now they're going to kill him. Even though I did see, I saw performance and, uh, even though the person that he killed was hurting him in the moment and doing very terrible things to him. Um, but it all like started because he wasn't supposed to go right. See the guy. So he's, he he was acting as a free agent a little too much. He's got to go into hiding and he ends up hiding out at the house of a former rock star, Mm -hmm. uh, played by Mick Jagger, who was a current rock star uh, at, at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely has a lot. The movie definitely has a lot to say about masculinity. Um, very much so. And, and, and class to a certain extent and what, uh, but also what in terms of taste and culture, what is considered masculine, which is something that I think Mm -hmm. is, uh, we probably don't talk about enough, but is very much 
like as a especially as a as a kid as a boy you know there's a lot of like i can't like that you know right like the, the, I, i'll tell you the first movie that i ever saw twice in a movie theater um was the little mermaid i love the little mermaid okay but i also felt self-conscious about like i didn't tell oh, sure. my school chums how much i loved the little mermaid and that i was going to see it again with my sister <laughs> that following weekend did you, you also know? tell them did you also tell them that you called them chums <laughs> yeah i think that might have well i had sat- the whole uh uh, marine thing going on right, so exactly. i was thinking about chum um uh anyway so you watched the two what did you what did you think uh it's definitely <clears throat> having seen my fair share of uh british gangster movies it it winds up being a very interesting riff on that because those are so often about a specific type of masculinity that where it's all about where the emotions are all at the surface and they're usually anger. And because I'm going to make a lofty statement here, gangsters are inherently self-centered. Uh-huh. Uh, it's kind of the nature of them is, uh, for me to be rich, you need to be dead. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm going to make that happen cause I don't want to not be rich. Um, and so these characters tend to be very impulsive and whatever they think uh, should happen is just what's going to happen. They are not introspective They They don't question why they do things. Yeah. And so if you see stuff like, uh, you know, the original get Carter, uh, and then stuff and then l- later stuff like sexy beasts, um, and even the, even the limey a little bit. Um, but that one, the, the film itself is introspective, but, uh, but just these, psychopathic characters um and this idea that the character chaz played by james fox who actually would go on to be in sexy beast Mm -hmm. um and incidentally i took the liberty of looking up james fox after performance he took a break from acting and became an evangelical christian and and was that for a while and when you watch performance like yeah i see it (laughs) someone needed to scrub himself a bit uh but uh but you know, good for him for uh, because, to my knowledge, uh, he remained. Uh, uh, I say remained. He's still he's still around. He's mm-hmm. seventy nine, but he is still a Christian. But he missed missed acting and came back to it and was in stuff like Sexy Beast, which in which his character is very hedonistic and all that. Right. And so, uh, you know, good for him for still committing to the craft. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, the character of Chaz, it's a great performance uh, precisely because I detest him so much. Uh-huh. Um, but I don't like a lot of other people either. Um, yeah. His, Mick Jagger's like the character other, is a, a, a jerk. He's yeah. conceited. Um, yeah. But he's also kind of uh, emotionally wounded in, right. in a way. Um, and I just, I like the parallel of the characters because these are, these are two guys who granted they went very different ways, but in both cases they are outside the norm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as a result, they both have turned into self-centered, uh, assholes. One of them much more dangerous than the others, but, but, and then even within the world of the gangsters themselves, Chaz is just this kind of mad dog that people like, okay, as long as we're able to, as long as he benefits us, great. Uh, but the minute he goes a little bit off the leash, then you know what? Uh, we need to get rid of him. Um, and I do like how comical the gangsters are and they seem kind of inept. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, 
so just from a story standpoint, I find it interesting and, and the way it explores the, what connects these two characters and yet how they, Chaz certainly sees himself as so very different. Um, yeah. um, stylistically. Well, that's what I was going to say is that apparently, um, a lot of the style of the way that, that the movie is cut together mm. is something that we would come to associate with Nicholas Rogue, but apparently most of that came from Donald Kamel. Yeah. So I wonder how much of Nicholas Rogue, like he obviously knew how to shoot a movie. Right. I wonder how much of his editing instinct he just learned from Donald Kamel or Camel. And that's the thing is when I think of something like Demon Seed, I don't remember it having quite this uh, quality to okay. it. So I think Nicholas Rogue, like, just found something that worked for him and then said, I'm going to do this a lot. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this because the films of his that I've seen and I, re- uh, I thought it was three. I realized looking over his filmography, it's four. Um, I, okay. His films are extremely sexual, but I'm reluctant to say, I think they're sexual, but not sensual. They're not, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like those kind, those hard cuts and stuff do not make this an an, an ex, particularly erotic. Yeah, they're not very erotic. Even though, yeah, he will get to his one of the most famous things he did was a sex Indeed. scene. Uh, one of the most famous sex scenes um, uh, in in cinema. But he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't tend. To, there's a lot of sex in his movies, but he doesn't tend to see it as a very positive thing a lot of the time. No, um, it'll, and it'll it'll get worse. Some of his stuff gets yeah. pretty perverse. Even um, even when uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit to the one you're talking about, like even sex scenes that are emotionally positive for the characters, which I think it's safe to say is not the case in any of the scenes. In is that true? Any of the Chaz based scenes uh-huh. in performance, uh, but also uh, there are a number of sex scenes uh, or they're not full scenes, but like uh, it's hard to it's hard to break his movies into scenes. Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, definitely. Moments. I'll just say moments. There yeah. are sexual moments in performance with the Mick Jagger character and his girlfriends and that sort of thing. Um, and those could be seen as. I think the characters see that as kind of liberating, but the care, but the Mick Jagger character is still inherently selfish. And so yeah. it's hard to see it as, as, uh, an exercise in vulnerability, as opposed to the movie we're talking about is don't look now. That scene is a very positive thing between the characters, but Nicholas rogue still seems suspicious of it somehow, yeah. but we'll, we'll, well, get, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, a couple more just notes about, uh, performance just to look forward. Um, to things that will come up again. This is not the first time he will cast a famous musician in the lead mm-hmm. role. Uh, there's at least two more that I can think of. Um, and this is also not the first time that he will make a movie that the studio absolutely hates. Oh, sure. Warner Brothers delayed this movie for years, which I, you watched it. So you remember the part there's Mick Jagger's kind of fucking with him and saying, when have we met before? And he's like, yeah. And at one point he says like, no, it was 1972 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was the movie came out in 1972. He says, no, it was 1970 or whatever. Yeah. That was supposed to be a joke about him saying a future date. Right. But the movie sat around for three years because <laughs> uh, Warner Brothers hated it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, that's, that's some things to, to look forward to. Uh, next up, the next year is walkabout. And this is another thing. Uh, I, I, I watched a um, interview with um, from like 2011 with Nick Rogue and his son Luke Rogue, who plays the young boy in Walkabout, and 
um, the uh, why am I drawing a blank on her name all of a sudden? But the the girl who plays the sixteen year old girl in um, uh, is it Jenna a gutter something like that um, in in walkabout. And anyway, he was talking about uh, again speaking about this Jenny a gutter, yeah, Jenny a gutter. So um, studios and funding and stuff. His initial screenplay for walkabout was about 15 pages long <laughs> because all the stuff yeah. that all the descriptions of the scenes and stuff was like you were saying, he was like, no, I have that in my head or I'll figure it out when I'm there. But he had to like sort of go to Australia and like pick up some stuff and to work it into screenplay. So he had something he could, he could present for funding because no one's going to, no one was going to fund his 15 page feature script. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but uh, walkabout is based on, um, a uh, a novel that I have not read about a brother and sister who get lost in the Australian, an English brother and sister. Uh, this is a big thing with him, actually. After performance, he's considered one of the great British or at least English directors, mm-hmm. but after performance, very little, very few of his movies are really about England. Yeah. Like, they figure, they feature English people who are abro- abroad, as with Walkabout or sort of kind of with the man who felt the earth, which is about yeah. an alien in America, but it's a British alien and Julie um, Christie and don't uh, look now. She's British. Oh, that's right. She is British. And the, yeah, then there's, but then there's also a lot of stories about Americans abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, don't look now. Uh, and, um, Eureka, we'll talk about, uh, and, uh, the witches. Heaven. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. The, Again, the I, kid I, is American. Um, so yeah, uh, it's about the brother and sister who get lost in the outback and then befriend a slightly older abor- Aboriginal boy, um, and uh, they have a uh, dark and sometimes violent, sometimes erotic uh, journey mm-hmm. through the outback, hopefully to safety and civilization. Right. But uh, you'll have to watch the movie to find out. Uh, is this one of the four that you've seen? No. Okay. Well, I saw clips of it. Uh, I did read the novel uh, in seventh grade and we saw a couple clips of it, but I've not seen the whole film. And certainly the, uh, eroticism is something that, uh, I did not see. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but this is, so in a, in a way this is his first, um, film because really because right. he was a co-director the first time. Uh, but clearly still not learning to work within a system. Eventually mm-hmm. make the witches, which is a big, you know, Jim Henson produced, you know, right. a big budget studio movie. But, um, he went to Australia with his family and a crew of about six people and just hung out in the outback and shot this movie. Um, it, it's, it, awesome. it, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly gorgeous movie. Um, and that's something that even in movies that you might consider his lesser movies that that'll come up later, um, they're all beautiful to look at. He Mm -hmm. comes from the camera background. He knows, uh, how to frame a shot and he knows how light a shot and he knows about mise-en-scene and, um, every move, every frame of every one of his movies is, is gorgeous. Um, but, uh, there's also something very sinister about the landscapes that he creates. um, the uh i would ne- you know you know me you know i'll never say that the location is like another character because i hate that. right but within within his films there is a psychic connection between people and, and their landscapes mm-hmm. and it does feel like the outback is not just indifferent to them that it wants to hurt, hurt them yeah. because not only is the nature trying to hurt them the um do you know how i, I can't remember you said you read the novel right mm-hmm. 
how do they end up in the outback in the novel? Uh, well, it was a long time ago okay. that I read it. I don't because in the I, movie I might be getting it mixed up. With, I mean, I read both, right? But it might I might be thinking of like Lord of the Flies. It's some kind of crash, I think. Right? No, is so it, in the movie, I don't know how it is in the novel. In the movie, their father drives them out to the outback and then tries to kill them and kills himself because he's gone insane and lights the car on fire. I do not recall if that is the, uh, <laughs> so I'll even before now. nature and animals and exposure are trying to kill them, their own father is firing a gun at them. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Nicholas Rogue finds a lot of beauty in the world, but also finds it to be an incredibly dangerous and violent place. Uh, let's move okay, on. Yes. So, okay. I was correct. Yes. It's a, it's a, a plane crash. Uh, in the in the book, so the fact that that he chose to have it be, you know, admittedly, when you think about it, when it's just him and a few people, well, they can't they can't have a plane crash, right? And right. so the the initial horror of that story came uh, from a place of pragmatism, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have not seen the documentary Glastonbury Fair. Okay. I have seen Don't Look Now. Yes, as have I. Okay, so um, I'm not sure if this is... Well, maybe it's not. Um, <clears throat> it's almost certainly not the example you were talking about, but speaking of seeing things before they happen. Right. Right I, at I the mean, very beginning... It happens in performance. Is, uh, like, we actually... Just for, just for a split right. second, we see the Mick Jagger character... That's right. ...before he's been... The, as as a character that exists has even been introduced. Yeah. Um, it's uh, very strange. Well, here... It bef- makes more sense in this. Uh, well, but it, here, before uh, Don Sutherland and Julie Christie's um, daughter dies, mm-hmm. we see a glimpse of the Venice hotel room where the movie ends up mm-hmm. later. Um, and then, again, speaking of him changing things from the novel, in, in the novel... Uh, don't look now. She dies of an illness. Hmm. Uh, in the movie, she drowns in the pond and they're right. on their, on their property. Um, and again, talking, speaking about the things that are going on with the characters, uh, uh, affecting the world. He's watching slides to cause Alan Sutherland is, uh, he's, he's like, like been paid he, to renovate a church in Venice. Yeah. He like mean? restores buildings. Okay. That's what he yeah. does. And so he's watching, he's looking at slides of the church that he's going to go over to mm-hmm. Venice to restore. And one of them, like, tears as he as it goes through the projector mm-hmm. and this like red light comes through at the exact moment yeah i not i don't know if it really is the exact moment within when within the movie it's yeah. the exact moment that the daughter is 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 drowning and he then rushes out he's been given he doesn't hear anything he didn't see anything he just suddenly knows that something is very wrong yeah and so he runs out and so this <laughs> strange as it may sound of the films that I've seen, this might be the one that makes the most sense uh, where the style actually plays into the story itself, where uh-huh. there is uh, not necessarily uh, not not telepathy, but like, what would you call it? Someone that can see the future, like, I guess just like psychic yeah. elements to the characters and being able to for, foresee something yeah. that we don't know and they don't know. And so, uh, it's like, Oh, okay. Nicholas rogue made a movie that plays in, uh, you know, is telling a story that plays into his style. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, and don't look now is, I guess, considered a horror movie. Um, and it definitely has horror yeah. elements yeah. Uh, to it. I just, 
I mean, I think I tend to think of it as a Nicholas Rogue movie, and then people are like, sure. I see it described as a horror movie, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that's what it is, because um, they, uh, after, you know, going through the very sad process of mm-hmm. uh, burying um, their their daughter, they do go to Venice, right? and then while they're there, they're stalked, stalked by uh, a what might be some sort of a uh, 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 specter of their dead daughter right. in a, in a bright red coat. Yeah. Um, or it might just be a psychotic killer. Um, yeah. And, and so it has that horror type element, but let's get to the sex scene. Yeah. Because yeah, it is, it's very famous because it's, um, I think there, there's just very little, I mean, it's not real, penetrative sex but it's as close to unsimulated Uh, you know they're they're right up uh uh against one another and shot in sort of uh often full body at once you know there's not a lot of like um you know you're not getting little glimpses of like oh a hand on a shoulder blade or like the sort of things we see which is nothing wrong with those when they're done well It, it it is very Explicit, and yet I don't find it especially erotic. Except what I do like about it is that it's not j- that it it's sex between a married couple. Yeah, which is surprisingly rare <laughs> to see mm-hmm. in movies. And again, his playing with chronology thing. Do you remember how he he cross cuts yeah. the sex scene with shots of them getting dressed after having sex? Right, which is it's an odd choice, but it's so it, kind of great. Yeah, because it, it, it says so much about the, their familiarity with yeah. one another that you know this is, um, you know, like when it's in most sex scenes in a movie it's like the end of a first date or something they fall into bed and then like right. it's the next morning whereas like once you're a married couple you might you know have sex and then gotta go to that thing we gotta go to right you know that, that, that's like, a, yeah okay so <clears throat> being raised the the way i was raised where you know you don't have sex until you're married which was the case with me incidentally um not, I don't. Not incidentally. Oh, what was that? Yeah, I mean, I mean on, on purpose. Yeah, it was on purpose. It's just like <laughs> we, we just, Jen and I just kept meaning to, and then we just forgot. There's so much wedding planning going on. <laughs> exactly. It's like ah, we gotta go to that dinner. You know, gotta, um, gotta pick out these flowers. We, we don't have time. But I do think that there's there's the definitely the potential. Like when you know the specific day that you're going to lose your virginity, and you know that it's going to be with this person that you love, like it really gets blown up in your head. And of course, it is very important on any number of levels, physical, emotional, all that. Um, but <coughs> you don't think, and because of movies and that sort of thing, you don't think of the mundane aspect of it. Yeah. And when it comes right down to it, like yeah. Sex is awesome. High five. Uh, and you feel very close to this other person. And then you just keep going with your day. Yeah. <laughs> You're just like, well, I guess I better check my email. You know, unmarried Tyler never would have thought of that. It's just like, why am I not doing this all the time? And yeah. surely it's like in movies where afterwards you both just lay there in each other's arms. Like, no, sometimes you got to get this in. And then you then you have to go to work or something like that. And that and his choice to shoot it that way, I could see it. It is the there. There have been some sex scenes between married, uh, a married couple. It's something you don't see very often because it's not seen as romantic. And this is seen as like there's. 
it's it's romantic it's a little bit erotic but it is undeniably comfortable and yeah. familiar they know each other and they love what they're doing and they love each other but the aftermath is it's not just as much a part of it as the physical act but it is a part of it the getting undressed and then doing this and then getting dressed and going at, going uh, about your day it's such an odd choice for this movie yeah like why is it important for yeah. this movie aside from my one of my take uh, takeaways one of my takes away was uh early on i wasn't sure if this couple if the death of their daughter was going to tear them apart um and then in this yeah. moment you actually see no they still really love each other and they still would rather be with each other than any than really anything else like you, even when you see him working you part of me i think we're just kind of we see this in so many other movies we're just used to oh he's really into his work he's probably having an affair or something like that <laughs> right. no he's in love with his wife and he he likes his work but he loves his wife as uh john candy says in planes trains and automobiles and that scene shot that way because if it were if it were just the sex scene someone somewhere could make the argument that that's them trying to that's them in sort of in denial like trying right. to drown their grief in this other kind of passion but because we see the mundane part too we see that it's all that's this is their life it's all part of it and yeah. it's such an odd choice it's out of nowhere it's a long scene mm-hmm. but it's it's brilliant. It yeah. is a brilliant thing. And it's because it's not erotic that I, I, I guarantee it's because it's not those, you know, it's not treated like a standard movie sex scene that so many people thought like it has to be real. Look how, look how <laughs> right. real it feels. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I've been talking for a while. I'm sorry. No, no, that's quite all right. Um, uh, back to real quick, then we'll move on, but real quick back to the horror thing. Uh, Bernard Rose, who directed one of my all time favorite horror movies, Candyman. Okay. Uh, he uh, went on to become a good friend of Nicholas Rogue's, and actually, his uh, the DP on Candyman was Nicholas Rogue's uh, uh, camera assistant cameraman. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, he discovered Nicholas Rogue's work at a double bill of Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man, which is not Nicholas Rogue, right? But he said, like to this day, he never really has understood the cult around the Wicker Man because after having just watched Don't Look Now, it felt so conventional and boring and safe to him. That's pro- <laughs> that's definitely true. It is uh, very straight. Have you seen the Wicker Man? I've never seen it. It's person. very straightforward. It's a fascinating film. I really like it. But yeah, from uh, from a style and structure standpoint, Don't Look Now is just yeah. I mean, in many ways, it's just batshit crazy. It, in- it, in- it incorporates so many things. Like you didn't even mention the two sisters who are uh, just two, oh, right. two British sisters who happen to be vacationing in Venice. And, and this speaks to something that I, I wanted to mention, which is, you know, in the sex scene, of course there's going to be sexual elements and in the life of a rock star and a hedonistic gangster, you're going to have those as well. But there's a scene where one of the sisters uh, they don't know they're not friends with, uh, Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. They just happen to be visiting in, at least at this point in the story, they happen to be visiting Venice and one of them is blind and is a psychic. And so there's a sort of a seance scene between the two sisters and Julie Christie. And 
the blind sister seems to be sort of channeling the dead daughter. And while she's doing that, she, it's, it sounds, she's making very orgasmic sounds. She's rubbing her own breasts, Mm. uh, in a way that is, that is uncomfortable in the context of like, wait, I thought we were dealing with a little girl because this is, uh, (laughs) this has become gross. Uh, but I feel like Nicholas Rogue is just an extremely sexual filmmaker. I think it's something that he, I think he realized like it, something as primal as that is going to play into so many things that we do, even the things that you would not initially uh, associate with that. Um, and it's actually something I'm, I'm so glad that I rewatched the witches. I saw it when I was a kid. Yeah. And when we get there, yeah, Jim Henson kids movie. You wouldn't think it wouldn't be, you wouldn't think it would be quite as sexual as it is. It is. Oh, good. And I'll talk about it when okay, we get yeah. there. Um, let's move on. To... I'm not going to be talking for a while now, so go to town. Okay. Well, I'm, well, this is, I won't be able to spend too long on the man who fell to earth because outside after the witches, it's the one that has been the longest since I've seen it. It's been close to, it's probably been more than 15 years since I've seen the man who fell to earth. But, um, David Bowie plays an alien who comes to earth to help save his planet. Um, and here's where we get back to Nicholas rogues cynicism. Uh, he finds the world to be a terrible, awful place and becomes an alcoholic. Um, he's an alien alcoholic, uh, and that's his only way of sort of, um, being able to cope with mm-hmm. how awful he finds the world. Um, but it also has, uh, to go back to just to pick up on things that, um, uh, show up in his movies from time to time, the idea of different parts of the story or just different times of the world happening simultaneously. Um, there's a part where we see David Bowie sort of driving through the plane States. And then we see dust bowl, like people from the, the depression. Mm. And at first it seems like, okay, this is just a sort of montage editing type thing, but then they make eye contact him. And so it's, and that could be because he's an alien. Maybe he's tapped into something else, but Nicholas Rogue is not one to over explain things ever. In fact, I feel like if you were to ask Nicholas Rogue, you can't now rest in peace. But if you ask, ask, ask Nicholas Rogue about in any movie, any one of his movies, if you were to point to a moment and say, is that real or is that a dream sequence? I think he would be exasperated that you're not understanding the movie. Cause that's not yeah. the point of his movies. Everything is sort of as real to the characters as anything else. Right. And it doesn't fall into such, uh, rigid, uh, rigid, rigid, uh, roles. But, uh, um, I'm trying to think what else I, Wanted to say about the man who fell to earth. Oh yeah. Another time he cast a famous musician, uh, in the lead role. I might've mentioned that it was David Bowie. Um, and, um, was there one other thing that I wanted to say about it? No, I said cynical and I said the alcoholism thing and I mentioned the dust bowl thing. Those are all of my notes on the man who fell to earth. It also is a sex sexual movie. If you ever wanted to see rip torn's dick, um, you, you can see rip torn's dick in this movie. I'm Um, so furious. I haven't seen the movie now. (laughs) Um, uh, it also, there's a, there's a, do you know the actor, uh, is it, is his name Bernie Casey? Um, 
Sounds familiar. Yeah, look him up because once you see him, if I'm getting his name right, um, hold on, uh, this is really interesting. Yeah, Bernie. Oh yeah, is, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in a lot of stuff, and uh, so he's an African American actor, mm-hmm. and um, he he play in the Man Who Fell to Earth. He plays a very powerful head of a. Uh, a corporation or he's a military man. Again, it's been only more than 15 years, but he plays a, a person of a lot of power and, and respect. And I don't think, I don't think of Nicholas Rugg as an outwardly political filmmaker. No. Um, even though I think that, uh, his politics probably do, uh, <coughs> as they do to anyone, uh, inform his, his choices. But, um, it, <coughs> it he does seem to like by positioning Bernie Casey's character as not just powerful, but specifically powerful in the sort of establishment. Uh, he does seem to be saying something about either the way things are, or the way they could be. Mm-hmm. Um, cause obviously, uh, that was even rarer, uh, 40 years ago than it is, is now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the only other thing I wanted to mention about the man who fell to earth next up. Okay. Now we get to one that I watched very recently. 1980s bad timing. This is not the fourth one you've seen. No, because I thought it might be uh, one that you've seen because I think, and you might know this, is this the first movie that Tom Waits ever let one of his songs be used in? Uh, I don't know exactly, but uh, looking as far as the timing goes, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, I think I, I think it is. Um, although now I can't remember the song, but um, uh, that's why I thought you might have maybe seen it just as, as a uh, Tom Waits fan, because <laughs> um, obviously he saw something in it. But this is the third time he cast a musician in the, in the lead role. This is Art Garfunkel uh, stars in Bad Timing along alongside someone you're gonna be hearing a lot about uh, over these next few films Teresa Russell mm-hmm. um, who would go on to be Nicholas Rogue's wife and his star in a number of the movies uh, to come um, and this is another movie like performance was uh, I think a lot of this movie has to do with uh, depictions of masculinity I think like Nicholas Rogue was about a lot of stuff he's pretty cynical about mm-hmm. it and I think uh it's and maybe it's because I watched this very recently, where we're at a time when conversations about toxic masculinity are coming up more often. But uh, Art Garfunkel plays a character who is not someone you th- would think of. He's played by Art Garfunkel. He's not someone you would think of as right. inherently He's masculine and right. But the way that he treats Teresa Russell in his relationship he's uh he's like a a a businessman and she's sort of a um bohemian free spirit type and they have this on again off again relationship and he's very controlling in a way that feels um it's just always interesting to me i came up recently when i was watching robert smekas welcome to marwin the idea that you don't have to be quote unquote macho to be a misogynist. You can be sort of this meek and soft spoken, you know, guy who dresses well and has curly hair, but you can still be misogynist. I was going to ask, so he's this businessman. Does he still have the art Garfunkel hair or is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and this movie is very far out of, uh, chronological order. Um, because it starts with you learning that Teresa Russell's character has overdosed. And then, the movie it takes place in Vienna. Almost all the characters are American. I like 
Art Garfunkel, Therese Russell, and then Harvey Keitel plays a cop. Hmm. I don't know if he's, I'm not sure if he's supposed to be Viennese and he has a Harvey Keitel accent somehow, or he's an American who joined the police force in Vienna. I don't understand. But, um, so the movie is kind of structured like a flashback police procedural of Harvey Keitel mm-hmm. trying to learn because he doesn't trust our Garfield's story about how, about the overdose. And as things go on, we don't either where we tend to be, uh, a step or two ahead of Harvey Keitel's character, but not too far. We, we'd learn things just a little bit before he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, Nicholas Rogue being Nicholas Rogue, he's not going to make a straightforward genre movie. Right. So it, it has this loose detective procedural structure, but that's not really the point. Um, the point is, again, a very cynical look at relationships in general and sex in particular. Um, there are things I want to say about the ending of Bad Timing that I won't because I don't want to okay. spoil it, I guess, or give it away. But uh, it feels weird to be like cagey protecting a spoiler that is really upsetting. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, the the movie definitely goes to to some, some dark places. But it does match his or does uh, mark his first... Um, uh, um, collaboration with Teresa Russell. There's also, oh yeah, this isn't my insight, but uh, uh, I read this somewhere else. I heard this somewhere else, but um, Bad Timing is a very psychologically con- concerned movie that takes place in Vienna, the city of Sigmund Freud. I I think that is probably intentional, um, or at least he maybe saw that in Vienna and, yeah. and played it up. Uh, I did have a thought, incidentally, okay. uh, just describing like oh harvey keitel plays a cop but he's american in vienna and when i think of something like the third man which is on Uh my mind because i showed a clip from it today um it's you know the main character in in the third man the the cops that he deals with are british like because vienna at the time is sort of split up into all these different factions and so i wonder anytime Anytime a movie takes place in a certain location or a certain uh, part of the world and it's out of place, you know, like this story should be New York, but it's in (laughs) Vienna. So anytime I I see that, I always wonder if it's for a very particular reason. Like you said, like there's a connection to Sigmund Freud for film people, which I think Nicholas Rogue is, you know, was one. Uh, It has a connection to... uh, a classic film where a guy is find finds himself like caught up in this story and is heavily under suspicion by the police and that sort of thing. So I don't know. It's, it might have something to do with that. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, couple other notes so I mentioned. This is another one of the major ones that was hated by the studio that made it so much that the, or the, at least the production company rank pictures or whatever, I think is what they're called. Uh, took their logo off the movie. Um, like J, J Arthur rank. Uh, like that? I don't know. Oh, okay. Uh, but I know that it was called rank and they took their logo off and people found it cause it's a, it's a, it's not a romance. It's a relationship movie about mm. two people that are just terrible and are awful to one another. One of them happens to be more awful than the other one. But, um, uh, and again, I don't want to, spoiler it feels weird to say spoiler i don't want to give away the ending but um it does get perverse okay um and so i think people are people are often uncomfortable with his movies and this is considered his last or you might some people might say the man who felt the earth was his last 
great movie or if not, then bad timing is his people tend to think that he went downhill after bad timing. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think we've got at least one real winner, uh, coming up in the early nineties or no late eighties. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I, I do wonder if maybe this was a step too far for some people. His movies already made people uncomfortable, but now they're about people that are just hateful. Yeah. And, uh, and and it goes to dark, uncomfortable uh, sexual places. Do you think that somebody like, you know, there, there are different types of filmmakers, and I, you know, I would feel comfortable grouping certain types of, you know, like... James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis. Like, I feel very comfortable grouping them together as far as, like, okay. very mainstream sensibilities, interested in technology, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, not usually experimenting much narratively. Okay, with a couple of exceptions here and there. But, Certainly um, welcome to Marwin. Uh, experiments with narrative. Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, you haven't watched the other. Right. But then I feel yeah. like certain elements of Munich, I think. So there, okay. there are exceptions, but... Uh, and similarly... When I think of somebody like a Nicholas Rogue as a guy who even his most accessible movies are not easy mm. and preoccupation with like sexual stuff. Uh, and I would venture to say a certain misanthropic uh, tendency. So like I would feel I feel like I would put him in the camp of like he's somewhere in between Lars von Trier and like Neil LeBute. Uh, oh sure. Like if, if if you were to watch like one movie by each of those yeah. three in one night, it would not be inconsistent. Totally. Yeah, that's probably that's probably true. Uh, even though stylistically, yeah, they're very there's right. a lot of differences as there are differences between uh, James Cameron and, and Robert Zemeckis right. uh, stylistically. But uh, yeah, there's as far yeah, as the way you feel, there's definitely out a of lot it. of misanthropy uh, yeah. in in his movies. Um, so let's move on to 1982's Eureka, which uh, stars Gene Hackman. It has a crazy cast. Mm-hmm. It's Gene Hackman, Teresa Russell, again, of course, Rutger Hauer, who's great in it, um, Joe Pesci, um, as a, he's playing a gangster, as usual, oh. but a Jewish gangster this time. Okay. It's Joe Pesci with a yarmulke on, um, uh, which you don't see every day. Uh, I see uh, Mickey Rourke is in it. Yeah, that's right. Mickey Rourke is in it. Um, I feel like there's... Uh, oh, Ed, Ed Lauder um, yeah. uh, has a pretty big part, actually. Uh, yeah, so it's very loosely based on the true story. Uh, the real guy was Canadian, um, a prospector who was broke for most of his life until he was like middle aged, and then after having purchased a claim that everyone thought was a dud, had nothing on it, found an incredibly rich vein of gold and become one of the richest people in the world. And then spent the rest of his life fabulously wealthy, but miserable. And then was murdered. Um, I guess that's kind of a spoiler for the movie that Gene Hagman's character does get murdered in it. Um, uh, but, um, it's again, a very cynical movie this time about, about money and it's interesting i talked about part of the reason i brought up like whether man felt earth is sort of trying to predict the future or, or seeing things coming and changes and in, in, in race in america or whatever um it's interesting to see this movie 1982 at the very beginning of the you know reagan thatcher 80s 
excess right wall street you know wall street the place in wall street the movie mm-hmm. you know gordon gecko greed is good type of decade to see him come in at the beginning and make this movie whose entire point is screaming at you money won't make you happy and in fact enough of it will probably make you fucking miserable yeah uh, and again it's a beautiful movie most of it takes place once you leave the uh, it takes place first in like the wintry like northern california um uh, that's where he uh, has a long uh, in a way kind of similar to there will be blood having that long sequence of him you right. know but this one has dialogue in it uh, and is more violent um uh, up to up to his initial discovery and then it ju- it just jumps decades from uh him becoming rich to him having a grown daughter played by Teresa Russell and having bought this uh, house. I can't remember where it's supposed to be like in the Bahamas or something. I think it's the Bahamas. I can't remember. Or maybe that's the real guy. The, uh, the Canadian Sir Harry Oak might've been his name. I can't remember. Um, here the character's name is Jack McCann. Uh, yeah, very, it's a very Gene Hackman type of (laughs) name. Um, it's so full of beautiful, uh, photography, but incredibly cynical, and incredibly anti uh greed and anti just money i guess anti wealth um and was also really poorly received by a lot of people Mm. and i can understand why because at the same time as it being it's being literally a beautiful movie the way it's shot it is a very very ugly movie in the way that um that that things unfold the way that it feels about people and then Again, not again. Okay, yeah. For the first time. For the first time. But also, I kind of, yeah, I spoiled that he gets murdered. His murder scene is like horror movie graphic. and mm. Very disturbing. Um, because these uh, these Jewish gangsters who want him to sell some of his land yeah. aren't content to just murder him. They want to just completely destroy his corpse. And, yeah. and uh, it's, it gets really, really gross. Um um, trying to think what else I was going to say. Rudger Hauer plays a um, the anti money guy who's kind of a, a new age voodoo type of guy. Oh wow! Um, except he's full of shit in a lot of ways too, and is kind of an asshole. So uh, Nicholas Rogue sees um, he's he's he an equal find, opportunity. He can find the worst in <laughs> yeah. everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So it has kind of this there will be blood type of like um, uh, or citizen Kane in some ways type of type right. of feel. Um, trying to remember. Uh, so I made all these notes, but I didn't put them in a good order. So I'm trying to remember if there's anything else I wanted to get to with Eureka. Uh, no, just that uh, once again is, is with um, uh, Teresa Russell, who has a uh, very long monologue at the end. The movie doesn't end with Gene Hackman's murder. Uh, mm-hmm. It's pretty far into the movie, but there's a whole uh, trial after, after the fact. And so she has a very long uh, monologue that I think just, I think that I, I want this movie to be revisited by people the way that I not revisited. Cause I watched it for the first time just a few weeks ago. Um, Cause I fully understand why people were so turned off by it. It's it's uh, it has an ugly view of the world and it also has a lot of theatricality to it. And so Teresa Russell is giving this monologue that's very big, almost like she's suddenly in this romance movie, but I think it's the right choice. I think I understand why he continued to cast her in movies after bad timing and after this. Um, and I understand why they found each other on the same, uh, wavelength. Um, but yeah, this is the, 
it's I guess long long held consensus wisdom or whatever it is that this was his first real dud, but I don't think that's fair. Okay. All right. And now stupid app. Stupid app. Stupid. Stupid. <laughs> okay, what are we uh, looking at? So then we're gonna have to skip a couple because I haven't seen Insignificance, okay. R.I.P. Filmstruck. Uh, I haven't seen Castaway. I don't actually really know much about that one. Um, we got some shorts here. And then the next one I'm going to talk about, which I think is the the real later career gem from him, is 1988's Track 29. Okay. Sorry, I had to take a drink of water. So once again, Teresa Russell stars. <coughs> so uh, uh, a quick note. Um Again, some of these films I, I haven't seen, but when you look at their cast, like he's somebody that I don't think he's a moneymaker. His movies don't necessarily like aren't always that well received, but he does attract pretty solid talent. And yet, yeah. like looking at this, I see that Gary Oldman is, and admittedly, he isn't who he he wasn't who he is now. But yeah. like Christopher Lloyd uh, is in it, and then uh, oh, nice Seymour Cassell and Leon Rippey and Sandra Bernhardt. Sandra uh, Bernhardt, yeah, but um. But even stuff like Eureka, I mean, Joe Pesci had been in Raging Bull at that point and, uh, you know, and Gene Hackman. And so, like, he he is one of these people like a Lars von Trier who right. makes a very specific type of movie that very few people are going to actually enjoy. Uh, but, but, the, for, but he seems to attract Actors want to work with him. Yeah. 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 The, uh, yeah, I, I do wonder if there's like a grapevine or a, uh, out there of actors spreading the idea of like, you, know, you got to work with this yeah. person. Um, actually, I mean, Ma- this is, Malik is another one. Not that his movies yeah. are this difficult, but they're difficult in their own way. Yeah. And he's someone that you can't even guarantee that if you act for him, you're going to be in the movie. Yeah. But people still want to work with him. Um, I remember, re- I can't remember if it was this an interview that I was watching and reading with Bruce Dern mm. talking about how. Al Pacino came up to him like out of nowhere at one point and was like, Nebraska, that was a ma-. He was like, I didn't, he was like, I think I can't remember the phrase that Bruce Dern used uh, or that Bruce Dern said Al Pacino used, but it was something like, I didn't see you working or whatever. Mm. You know, I didn't see the work. Yeah. I just saw the character or whatever. And Bruce Dern was like, oh, you got to work with Alexander Payne. Sure. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we'll see Al, Al Pacino and Alexander Payne movie uh, sometime soon. But I, can I, I like see, the uh, idea of, of like, actors recommending directors to other actors yeah. like like they're tailors or whatever i also you know you gotta it. go to <laughs> go to my I, guy i got alexander this guy Payne. alexander Payne. um <laughs> i like the idea of bruce dern not necessarily frail but old and getting older and then just minding his own business and then nebraska and just like and like giving him a heart attack he's like crazy ass al pacino yeah. just yells in his face um Okay, so track 29, I think, is a real gem and is also, it is especially perverse. Okay. Um, so, uh, Teresa Russell plays a, uh, a housewife um, whose husband, played by Christopher Lloyd, mm-hmm. uh, only cares about one thing, and that's his model trains. And then he goes off to work where he works as a doctor, where he's having an affair with a nurse played by Sandra Bernhard, who actually likes his trains. He's, he's celebrated in the, in the model train community. There's a part where he speaks at a model train convention where he might as well be like a revival preacher. It's really, really an awesome. And, and that's where the uh, title comes from, because he starts 
as a part of his speech, he starts quoting the lyrics to the Chattanooga song Chattanooga Choo Choo. Yeah. Choo. So he goes, track 29 in a big uh, <laughs> Christopher Lloyd voice. It's great. That's not um, a bad Christopher Lloyd just then, yeah, by the way. I'll never be able to do it again. Yeah. Um, so she's a miserable and bored housewife. And one day she's at the diner with uh, her friends and she sees this drifter who stops in played by Gary Oldman. And they have a little sort of interaction. And the next day he out of nowhere shows up at her house and um, claims to be the son that she gave up when she was younger. Okay. Now the ages don't work. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. And the movie is very much aware of that. <clears throat> and I think this is, this is what I was saying earlier about the idea that it would be missing the point to ask Nicholas rogue. What is real in this movie? Mm-hmm. This is the chief example. You have no idea whether or not this guy even exists. Yeah. Much less whether he is who he says he is, whether what happens when they're together actually happens. There's a part where, uh, he seems to have a gun that didn't exist before. Hmm. Um, and so, but what I'm not, what I haven't gotten to yet is that a, he says he's her long lost son. B, they clearly have an almost irresistible sexual tension between them. <laughs> it's a, it's a very perverse movie that I also think is, uh, incredibly exciting and um it's a unique work only nicholas rogue could have could have made it and it's got lots of great shots of model trains (laughs) Uh, it sort of opens with like a shot that like the the train and the model are framed so that they could be real like they could be real size and sort of train sort of goes past the camera oh like ant-man uh yeah sort of like that and then you see christopher lloyd's head just like dip into the frame (laughs) i mean it's model trains are uh, trains in general are obviously phallic and so do you think that was uh, i'm sure yeah yeah yeah. um and then also uh again i'm not the first person to have thought of this but gary ullman's character as a um uh potentially supernatural presence with a british accent in America is not unlike David Bowie's sure. character in the man who fell to earth. Um, he does seem to be sort of quoting himself in, in that way. So, um, yeah, I, I, when I was going through these, these eighties, uh, Nicholas rogue movies, I was absolutely delighted when I stumbled upon track 29. It is definitely worth checking out. Uh, next up, I think you get to talk again. Oh boy. Cause it's the witches, right? Yep. Which I haven't seen since I was, uh, no higher than a, whatever um a small child yeah <laughs> i was trying to think of something folksy and i couldn't think yeah. of something folksy uh oh, man you've changed yeah <laughs> i'm normally pretty folksy yeah you you are it's uh, deeply off-putting um yeah so uh, i saw the witches uh, i believe on video uh when i was a kid and thought it was fine i found it a little bit uncomfortable um and in watching in rewatching it of course I found it uncomfortable. <laughs> Good Lord. Because he shot it like a Nicholas Rogue film. It's still the, the Dutch angles, like the very abrupt edits. Um, and then anytime something supernatural is happening, it feels like, like, don't look now. It feels, um, <clears throat> it feels like a very adult 
uh, adult oriented suspense film. Um, I feel like a, a kid could watch this and be scared simply because of the general tone. Like it does, it just sets you on edge. Yeah. I remember um, finding it very, uh, unsettling. Yeah. Unsettling. Yeah. yeah. That's perfect. Um, and the story it's based on a rolled doll book. Um, and the, the story is, pretty contained it's mostly it mostly just takes place in this hotel and this and a a convention of witches uh gather and and they hatch this scheme where they're going to turn like all the kids in britain into mice and there comes a moment as there always must in a rolled doll story where a supporting character is a, a more obnoxious kid and uh, he needs to be made an example of just <laughs> to show us the stakes and so this kid bruno who is obno- he's not terrible but he's obnoxious and so they they uh gave him some of this potion and it's timed out that he'll turn into a mouse at a certain time and so in the midst of this uh convention uh, the main witch and Angel- the grand high witch uh, played by Angelica Houston, she like calls him in. And so he's like standing there like in front of everyone wondering like, what's uh, what's going on? Uh, and then he starts to turn into a mouse and the transformation is truly horrifying. That, the makeup effects are awful. That is something that definitely has stuck yeah. with me from when I, it's been a long time, but I remember that transformation. It's, uh, it's right up there with yeah. Lampwick in Pinocchio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but with uh, Jim Henson's help. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it's Jim Henson doing more horrifying work than we are used to, even in the 80s when he was doing stuff like Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal and that kind of thing. Um, but here's the thing. We get like these quick cuts and like these crazy angles of Bruno himself as he's changing. And then we get shots of Angelica Houston and I'm telling you, like, the only way to describe what she is doing is just grinding. <laughs> or you could say writhing. She seems to be deriving overt sexual pleasure from watching this happen. And when you see, uh, you know, when you see Nicholas Rogue films, uh-huh. you think, yeah, oh, there's, there's no question. He said, hey, uh, this is orgasmic for you. Enjoy. Um, and it's... It's an. It's such a strange. That reminds film. me of something that I, I, I didn't watch this for research here, but lo- a long time ago I watched an interview with Julie Christie about the sex scene. Oh, okay. And don't look now, and she did her impression of Nicholas Rowe because he tended to uh, operate his own camera, and oh, okay. so her impression of she's riding around in the bed with Donald Sutherland, and Nicholas Rowe is walking around the camera, going, "Okay, Julie, come." <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> 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 Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I imagine that's what he was saying to Angelica Houston. Yeah. And then the kid playing Bruno is like, what does that mean? He goes, nothing. No, but shut up. Um, you're a terrible kid. And you're going to grow up into a terrible adult and I will document all of it. No, it's, uh, it's just such a, in a way it's perfect because Roald Dahl is, his films tended to have a very dark, perverse, maybe not sexually perverse quality and tended to be a little bit, <laughs> a little bit misanthropic themselves. So the two do go together, but I will say that there, I mean, there is not an ounce of whimsy <laughs> in the witches. It's, it's very straightforward. It's not to I mean, it's, 
it's mm-hmm. stylistic to be sure. But like when you think of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or really any of these others, there's always, it has these darker elements, but there's always like this, a twinkle in the eye, no twinkles, uh, in the witches. It is a, I mean, okay. So here's, here's the thing. I respect Nicholas Rogue quite a bit and I can intellectually enjoy his movies, but I don't enjoy them. Mm-hmm. I don't enjoy the witches. I didn't <laughs> enjoy performance. I didn't enjoy don't look now. I appreciate them and I found them invigorating in certain ways, but I would, if I had a kid, I would not show him the witches yeah. him or her, the witches because like, I don't want to, don't get me wrong. Early Disney had really uh, disturbing things as well. It's not that. It's just the tone of it is just so uncomfortable, even in yeah. the midst of a family film. Yeah, all of it. I mean, he does seem like he's trying to make you uncomfortable. Oh, undoubtedly, but yeah. not in like a uh, strident, like Michael Hanukkah type of like. Right. Le- he's not lecturing you. Right. He doesn't think he's any better. He thinks we're all pieces of shit. Oh yeah, and you deserve to see movies about people who are pieces of shit. Yeah, um, and I definitely think that that sort of went on more in the eighties and that's kind of why he got, uh, uh, less and less, uh, acclaim because I think his movies do make people very uncomfortable, but and, they're, and they're you designed too. Yeah. And you mentioned the eighties, like it was the Reagan era. It was like, it was, it's morning in America. Like it was, we're walking on sunshine. It was, <laughs> it was an era of, of optimism coming out of a, a decade that was, between Watergate and Vietnam mm-hmm. and various things like seen as a very, and, and, a, a, a depression and all that. Um, and so his, his films really fit with the seventies and then they didn't really fit with the eighties. I don't think he was doing anything really different. Right. And so when people say that, like he, he hit his stride in the seventies or that's when he was at his best, like, no, it's just when, is that he kept doing what he was doing and the era changed. Yeah. And I realize that it's more than just the U S but you know, with Thatcher and Reagan, like it was definitely people trying to focus more on positivity and excess and all of that. Not to imply his films aren't excessive in their own way. Yeah. But not the way people like, uh, should we move on? Uh, sure. Uh, my final one, I get, I'm, by my math, you have another one after this. I do. My final one, um, 1991, is also his final movie with Teresa Russell. I think they split um, after this. It's called Cold Heaven. Okay. Uh, it's not his best, um, but it has some very Nicholas Rogue type stuff going on. Uh, it, I like much like Eureka, it was buried by the studio, barely released. I think it was kind of a, from what I understand, it was kind of like a. Uh, Red Rock West thing where they like gave it a nominal theatrical release basically just to qualify for TV deals. And then Mm -hmm. most people who saw cold heaven saw it on television. Um, but, uh, Teresa Russell plays, um, the wife of a very, uh, wealthy doctor played by Mark Harmon. Okay. Um, and she is having an affair with one of his doctor colleagues played by James Russo. And, uh, she is planning to tell Mark Harmon that she's leaving him. She's going to do it while they're on their, uh, he, he has a conference in Acapulco. They're going together to vacation in Acapulco. And her plan is to tell him there after his conference when he's in a good mood. But uh, the day before his conference, they're out in the water and he gets hit by a speedboat and killed. Um, and so she 
goes back home, but her guilt is such that she doesn't want to now run to into James Russo's arm. She's reconsidering their whole right. deal. He's not happy about that. And uh, the weird thing that happens then is that Mark Harmon shows up uh, again. Nicholas Rogue does not care to explain what's happening. Right. Does not care to explain like how he survived when she clearly saw his dead body on the table in the Mexican uh, hospital. Does not care to imply that he might be a ghost. Yeah. It doesn't matter. What's happening in that moment is happening in the moment. Yeah. And that's all that matters. Um, uh, and you could also, to go back to something I was saying much earlier, the idea that people's psychology affects their immediate surroundings. Mm-hmm. You could say that her guilt is that he's manifested because of her guilt. That right. That's right. what she brought. Uh, she brought back. Um, uh, it gets even more supernatural. Uh, it ends up involving um, some priests and a nun. There's a, uh, a bad priest named Monsignor Cassidy played by Richard Bradford. I don't know the actor, but he's very good. Uh, but then the good kind priest is played by your boy, yeah. Will Patton. Uh, and the kindly nun is played by the great Talia Shire. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it goes to some very, very weird supernatural places after that. Uh, oh, it, Richard Bradford. Okay. I see. What he's, do you know? Uh, Cause he's really good in the movie as, as a, is he uh, Irish? Uh, not in the movie. He's not. Okay. Cause in, uh, the untouchables, he plays an Irish cop. Okay. Uh, who is like on the take and is, uh, uh, sort of at odds with the Sean Connery character. Yeah. Uh, here he plays a priest who doesn't like that he has to meet with parishioners and his goal is to tell them what they want to hear and get them out of his office as quickly as possible. So basically uh, <laughs> a priest in a Nicholas Rogue film. If yeah, I had exactly. to guess. But Will Patton's a good priest. Okay. Um, that's good. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not his best work. It's a, kind of a bummer to end with that one, but it definitely has a lot of, uh, very Nicholas Rogue type stuff going on. And it's definitely notable for being his last collaboration with, uh, Teresa Russell. Okay, so next for me, next and last for me, um, is the 1993 TV movie Heart of Darkness, which... Oh, and see, this is like, like you with some of the other movies, I saw clips of Heart of Darkness in my okay. high school lit class when we, when we read Heart of Darkness, they showed us clips, but I didn't, okay. I didn't see enough of it to feel comfortable talking at length about it. Yeah, I saw it in high school, uh, just on my own, um, because I'd seen Apocalypse Now mm. and was interested in a film adaptation of the original story. Um, <clears throat> at the time, uh, I did not find it particularly intriguing. I think I wanted Apocalypse Now. Um, and I was struck, uh, but what struck me was some of the camera angles and uh, I don't recall it being particularly uh, overtly sexual. Again, it was a TV movie, right. but the, the way that the main characters, you know, uh, was it Marlo? Yeah. Marlo and Kurtz, Kurtz the way, yeah. the way they um, regard each other. I didn't, in retrospect, I don't, I don't know if I would say it's sexual, but it definitely struck me at the time. It seemed oddly intimate and familiar for two guys that have only just met. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that he was necessarily playing, uh, I don't think he was uh, uh, suggesting that the characters are attracted to each other, just that there is something that 
something that attracts them to each other, but not necessarily sexuality. So, um, so yeah, I wish I could say I remembered more about it, but I, I have a very specific memory of that. I, I don't think I probably even would have been, could have been able to verbalize it at the time. Um, but it, it, struck me it made me a little bit uncomfortable now that i think about it the one memory that i really have from that is from the beginning because i think the my teacher showed us mostly clips from the beginning we, we actually mm-hmm. didn't see very much of john malkovich we oh, saw okay. mostly tim roth but one thing that that sticks out to me that clearly nicholas rogue was fascinated in that's in the novel is do you remember the phrenology scene where tim roth has his skull measured you know oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah that old yeah, long debunked practice, you know, pseudoscience of being yeah. able to tell things about people. I've got my the shapes of their skull. Yeah. Um, but the idea, there's a whole, like there's medical equipment that goes with it. And it, it had kind of a horror movie feel, mm-hmm. um, in heart of darkness is not really a horror movie, but I, I do remember, uh, Nicholas Rogue was clearly fascinated with the way that people, uh, used to make assumptions about people based oh, on yeah. the shape of their skull. And he liked measuring Tim Roth's skull. That's um, what sticks out to me. And then also just a, a note, um, James Fox is, is in the film. Oh. I, I have no memory of him in it, but looking at the, at the cast right now, it's like, all right, so he decided to come back and work with Nicholas Rogue, yeah. even though Rogue drove him into the arms of God. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so that's the last thing of his that I've seen. But I will say, just kind of, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I think it's safe to say that uh, we can. Looking uh-huh. at his filmography, there's a film called Full Body Massage, one called Hotel Paradise. He did. He directed the 96 miniseries of Samson and Delilah. If I had to guess, I would say Delilah is rather sexual. Uh-huh. Um, he made a film in 2007 called Puffball, The Devil's Eyeball, which yeah. I want I want to see that more than anything in my life at this point. Well, that one... It is actually supposed to be uh, very explicit, from what yeah. I understand. Um, yeah. Uh, and it stars uh, Kelly Riley. And Miranda Richardson. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And Donald Sutherland. Oh, I didn't... Look at that. I didn't go that far. I guess, I guess I will have to see Puffball, The Devil's Eyeball. Yeah. Um, yeah, It's and, so, and then he made a film. Uh, it's the film that buys the cinema. In yeah, I 2014, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, I'm really glad that I saw uh, a lot of his movies. I think um, uh, I, I don't want to get into too much of my own psychology, but I think some of the themes that oh he explored, explored, explores really. Um, I think I have we've talked about pet themes before, mm-hmm. you know, and I think maybe it's because of my Catholic upbringing, which comes up in cold heaven, of course. But I think people who are kind of fucked up about sex tend to be fascinating characters to me. And so, uh, there's a lot of that in his, in his movies. Um, so I think that tends to, tends to speak to me. His shooting and editing style is, um, something that, uh, is found in a lot of the movies that I tend to really like that sort of impressionistic, uh, uh, approach, um, the, and the idea of, you know, coherent narrative being mo- mo- almost an afterthought at the time yeah. is, uh, is, is absolutely fine with me. So, um, yeah, I, I already 
liked Nicholas Rogue a lot before I watched some of these, as you mentioned, as you mentioned, uh, back at the beginning of the episode, when I first saw walkabout, I couldn't stop talking about how much I, mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, and I like him even more now having watched, um, stuff from the latter half of his career that is considered minor or lesser work. But, uh, yeah, Eureka, not for everyone, but definitely it's a big, bold movie and we're checking yeah. out track 29, it's great. Yeah, those sound really fascinating. And it and it goes to this, you know, I might make my jokes about Puffball, the Devil's Eyeball, which obviously I have to say the whole title, why wouldn't you? Right. But um but just because a director like just because they kind of fall out of favor, as long as they're continuing to make movies, there those movies are still going to be worth discussing when talking about the director. Uh, they're not going to stop being themselves just yeah. because they're, they're no longer like getting a huge budget. And this know? is what I, I can't remember why we talked about this, but recently we were talking about Francis Ford Coppola on the podcast. And mm-hmm. I had, I think, um, unfortunately it might be after he passes away, but his, yeah. his like two thousands work, uh, his 20th, 21st century work like Twixt and Youth Without Youth mm-hmm. um, and other stuff like that, I think is going to be is going to appreciate a resurgence yeah. or get a resurgence in appreciation um, at some point, um, perhaps, unfortunately, after he dies, I guess. Because I think so many people uh, and I'm probably one of them. It's the movies that we see are the movies that we are supposed to see because they're part of the conversation. Right. You know, uh, every year when we do our top 10, there's usually one or two movies in my top 10 and certainly yours. I think that I'll put quotes around this. Nobody gives a shit about. Mm, Yeah. It's like, well, that doesn't mean the movie is bad. And so like with somebody like Coppola, people like, Oh, well, he's not making the Godfather or apocalypse now or the conversation. And really, nobody's really talking about what was it? Tetro is that Tetro, him? Yeah. Like nobody's really talking about that. So I think I can just skip it. He's not who he used to be. It's like, but he's still him. Yeah, exactly. And that's worth remembering. Yeah, I think that as I get older, that's the type of film that I get more excited about. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, so uh, rest in peace, Nicholas Rogue. Indeed, he made a lot of great movies. They're not always pleasant to watch yeah but they're worth all worth watching um and uh you can find us at battleship you can email us at david at battleship if you got especially if you're going to send it for the patreon Indeed. and you got questions for the mailbag email them to david at battleship uh you can email tyler at tyler at battleship you can find me david on twitter at davy pretension let me real quick tell you about what's on the website this week my sundance coverage all over all day and all night yeah i did yeah. I, I i think this is i think uh i saw more movies and reviewed more movies this year than i have in this is my fourth year at sundance i think i did more this time than ever before uh other stuff on the website the movie meltdown podcast did their annual sort of in memoriam episode looking mm-hmm. at the people we lost in 2018 i for the post on the website i picked a picture of nicholas rogue Indeed. um we've got home video reviews of the bounty uh, starring Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins, Hopkins from uh, from Alex. We've got uh, reviews, theatrical reviews by me this week of Piercing and Arctic. You've got another home video review of The Appaloosa written by Craig. And uh, over at I Do Movies Badly, uh, Jim is finishing up his month of Malik with mm-hmm. The Tree of Life. So that's all available on the website. Um, Tyler, where can people... Uh, or, sorry, um, you have another website another podcast it's called more than one lesson what's going on over there 
Uh, let's see. So, uh, the salty cinema podcast, uh, has started up again, uh, with, uh, Jacob interviewing, uh, some interesting people that he's worked with, uh, over the years, but he's also, uh, interviewed like Alyssa Wilkinson and, uh, some notable, uh, Christians in the industry and adjacent to the industry. Um, and then, uh, the fear of God podcast, uh, did an episode called springtime for Shyamalan, uh, talking about the, his career leading up to to uh glass uh which reed is very much uh in the minority there are people that like glass but yeah. reed really likes glass and so uh it's and he on his own website he he posted uh his reasons why and then one of my writers uh bob Connolly, uh every year <coughs> he he does the bob awards he will readily admit he did not put much thought into the name uh but the the bob awards are just like it's like the bps but there is only one voter and it's him but as a result he tries to see as much stuff as he can and so uh so the bob award nominations have been posted and then once again um i'm putting out a new book called cinematic suffering uh which is increasingly becoming more about it does feature reviews i've written and a paper that i wrote but uh the stuff that i'm specifically writing for it uh it's quickly becoming a uh, i would venture to say a meditation on negative criticism and the role that it plays i can't wait to get my copy so uh so yeah, uh, you can pre-order that for $20 if you go to more than one lesson.com and click on the, uh, the graphic that says cinematic suffering, you can pre-order now and we're like 85% of the way there. So we're, we're doing well, but still do it. Uh, still yes, absolutely. Um, and then, okay, we're going to do, I think start doing this every week. The Patreon mm. this week, uh, should be up late Tuesday night, early Wednesday morning, but no promises. Cause this is the first one. We don't know if we'll hit any hiccups, right. but I'm very excited about what we're planning to do for this week's episode because it has been as of this weekend, oh, this been, weekend. Okay. Th- uh, it has been 10 years since the greatest gift Christian Bale ever gave us, which is his meltdown on the set of Terminator salvation. <laughs> Um, and so we are going to do a line by line analysis, close reading of the Christian Bale, uh, Terminator salvation meltdown. I feel like you may have lost some sales here, David. I feel like we should have sprung that on them and not used it as a selling point. No, I think it's a, it's definitely a selling point. I would, I would sign up for someone's (laughs) Patreon for here to hear that, but I do like love that, that rant, a little bit disproportionately somehow somehow indeed um but uh that's what we're going to kick off with um we're going to have lots of fun stuff on the patreon so uh yeah patreon.com slash battleship retention uh thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.